Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Mastermind.fm. With me, I have Stephen Young from NFTFi. And so just to start off, I'd like you, Stephen, to give a brief intro about yourself and how NFTFi came about. Sure. Uh, so my name is Stephen Young. I've been a software developer since like 1998 and an artist basically my whole life and spent most of my career working for banks and big fintechs. So, uh, you know, when NFTs came about, it was like a perfect match for me, programming plus finance plus art. Late 2019, started getting into um, NFTs, uh, was speaking to my business partner, Mads. He was very early in the CryptoKitties days uh, and you know, one of the biggest breeders at the time. And I was looking around for the next project that I wanted to do. And he basically said, you know, I, I really be able to love to be able to leverage my cats so that I can long ether. Uh, and I thought that was quite an interesting idea. Uh, and so we just did a bit of a brainstorm kind of over the phone and what that would look like. And then shortly after that lockdown happened. So I basically spent, um, you know, four months in lockdown building the first version of Niftify which was, I guess, a blessing in disguise because I had nothing else to do besides sit and work all day. Then we launched in early June 2020 and then just kind of it grew organically since then. So in, in 2020, we did around $300,000 in loan volume. In 2021, we did $40 million in loan volume. Uh, and in 2021, so far, we've done around $170 million, um, in loan volume. So it's been a bit of a, a wild ride since, since we launched. Um, uh, and then maybe I can give a quick... Uh, explanation of what Niftify mm -hmm. is and how it yeah. works. Uh, so if you own an NFT uh, and you're looking to, to get some liquidity on that, but you don't necessarily want to sell it, uh, you can come to Niftify listed on our platform as collateral looking for a loan. Uh, then lenders essentially make bids and compete to give you the best terms. Uh, and you'll then see all of the, the bids that you get. Uh, if you accept one of those bids, we move the NFT out of your wallet into an escrow wallet that we've written. It's completely locked. You know, nobody in the team or um, anybody else has access to that. The only way to get it out is to either repay the loan. Uh, so you've got a fixed term, fixed interest rate loan. If you repay the full amount before the end of the loan period, you get your NFT back. If, on the other hand, you don't, the lender can then foreclose on that loan, which means that they get the NFT and you keep the original loan amount. All right, so um, let's delve a bit deeper into this uh, because I'm sure that many people, especially the people I talk to, the, the main concern is like security. Mm. Where is my um, NFT going? Especially we're t talking uh, expensive NFTs. So yes. could you talk a bit more about how that works? I mean, you, you explained how it works, but what guarantees do you give to the to the users on both sides? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so all of our smart contracts, the code is available. So anybody can go look exactly what, what you can do in there. Um, and we've been we've double audited all of our smart contracts uh, that we're kind of using in production at the moment. So that's one side of it. You know, you can look at the code yourself and lots of people have to make sure that, you know, the contract is really doing what it said it's doing. The second part of it is we've now done like 200 and 11 million dollars in loans in total, 12, almost 12,000 loans, and we haven't had a single security compromise. So, you know, so I think in general in crypto, 
an audit just tells you that the auditors haven't found a bug. It doesn't tell mm-hmm. you that there aren't yeah. any bugs. Um, you know, so something one of the things that's important in, in this space is to also use battle-tested contracts that have kind of had lots of time in the market and had a lots of value flow through them and not had a compromise. So I think that's another one. Um, and then, and then yes, you know, so the way that the, the smart contract is designed is that when you start a loan, the NFT is actually moved into the smart contract uh, and there's no way for anybody in the team, there's no method that allows us to drain out those, those NFTs. There's two methods that allow, that allow you to take it out. It's repay loan uh, and foreclose loan. And foreclose loan will only be able to be triggered after the loan period expires. We are also speaking to a number of insurance, um, like uh, smart contract insurance platforms, uh, to start getting some uh, insurance cover on top of uh, these assets too, but we're still kind of in negotiation phases with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why is the foreclosure process manual, right? Because it's something that the lender has to activate to keep the NFT, basically. Yes, yes. Um, well, partly just because of, of gas costs, you know, so. Um, Niftify doesn't make any profit on a foreclosure, uh, so we are, so the way that Niftify um, earns uh, cash flows for the protocol is that that we take a five percent cut of the interest paid on a loan from the lender. So as a borrower, you don't pay anything, uh, and as a lender, you only pay if you make money. Uh, but then for us to then pay for the gas to foreclose the loan and move the move the asset means that we actually have negative uh, revenue on foreclosures. So, so the idea is, you know, the, the lender who did the loan, he receives the NFT, so he receives the value, so he should pay the gas for, for, um, to be able to do that. The other thing that we do is only the lender can call foreclose. Uh, so so that, that's another security measure. You can't have a th- random third party or us ourselves call foreclose. It has to be the lender. And part of the reason for doing that is that we, um, we in the next month or so, we're releasing a feature called uh, loan renegotiations. Uh, and that allows you to, even after a loan period is due, the borrower and the lender can come to an agreement uh, and say, okay, well, I'll extend the loan. I'll give you another week, uh, you know, and then kind of adjust interest and potentially ask for a re- renegotiation fee. But if we automatically jump into that process and foreclose, it closes that gap for the borrower and the lender to actually come to to an agreement. So right now, if I let the loan expire and don't foreclose for, say, an extra week, the borrower can still uh, return the money. The- uh, they can't return the money without first agreeing on that with the, um, with the actual lender, right? So... So after the loan period is up, the, the, the lender can foreclose at any time. The borrower isn't able to repay, but the borrower can go to the lender and say, hey, can we do a renegotiation? You sign a new contract, execute a new transaction that basically then would extend the period. So it has to be an agreement because from a lender's point of view, they they kind of gave a loan for a specific period at, you know, and they they manage the risk which is a function of both the loan to value ratio, how long the loan is in there and what the, the interest rate is. So if we just allow a borrower to repay late, it, it makes it very difficult for the, for the lender to actually manage the, the risk for, the, for their loan book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it needs to be a new agreement between the borrower and the lender to renegotiate. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Also, one other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, there isn't that functionality. There's always an offer, right? There's always needs to be as a lender. I need to make 
an offer and the borrower has to accept. Why isn't there like a functionality where I can just enter, see what's available, like in traditional markets where I can just assign my money directly on an offer that exists already? If I explain myself correctly. Yes. So, so what you're saying is, um, as a lender, why can't you just start a loan immediately uh, yeah, on yeah. something where you, yeah. Okay. So, so I'll explain that a little bit. There's some, mm-hmm. some reasons, but there is also a feature that we're adding soon. So listing an asset as looking for a loan, there's no obligation from the borrower, right? So, so they still then have a choice later on to decide, actually, I'm happy with this rate or not. They can, when they list, say, hey, I'm, list- I'm looking for a loan between this amount and this amount for this period. Uh, but in general, what we find is a lot of borrowers don't actually know what the fair market value is for these loans and what a re- reasonable um, rate is. Uh, it's normally the lenders that have the expertise to to value these things and kind of do the, the diligence they need to do to do the the right loans. So yeah, so that so that's like a key thing. We always want to make it that the person who is accepting the loan um, is the person in control of this actual uh, uh, transaction. Uh, the second thing uh, to just think about there is. Um, yeah, so what we're adding is a, is a feature that when you list an item and you specify uh, what your required loan terms are, we're adding a checkbox that says accept any loan that matches these things. Mm-hmm. And, and then the lender can initiate the actual loan, but it has to be a decision that the borrower makes at the time of listing the loan uh, because we don't want to um, like take that power away from them, right? So, so for us, it's very important that, you know, you know, one Ethereum is the same as any other Ethereum, but you know, one Moonbird is not the same as another Moonbird, right? So, so I think it's easier to get back Ethereum than it is to get back the specific asset that you're looking for. So, we really want the borrower to always be in control about when they accept these things and when they take on the, um, these loans. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. In terms of projects. Not all projects are accepted as collateral, right? Yes, that's correct. So how does, how does that work? And even within, you mentioned Moonbirds, for example, would you say that depending on rarity, some Moonbirds or whatever project it is are more ideal to be used in this context than others? Yeah. So, okay. So why do we whitelist it with or approve? Um, so. One of the reasons we do that is we want to make sure that a lender, when they're making an offer on what looks like a CryptoPunk or a Moonbird, is that it's an actual CryptoPunk or a Moonbird. So so part of the reason for having these approved lists is that we go check, is this the actual contract for the real project? We do a little bit of due diligence to make sure that once something is approved on the platform, you know for sure that you can trust that this is a real asset and you're not going to get uh, scammed. So that's the first thing. Uh, second thing is how do we decide if uh, we're going to approve uh, an asset? Uh, partly, like there's a few things we look at. So first is, uh, you know, has the project been around a, little, a while? Does it have a l- legit team? Is there anything dodgy in a smart contract that could be potentially used to exploit um, somebody's wallet? So, so it's just a little bit of kind of security checking. Uh, the second thing is because of the gas costs on Ethereum and the cost of, I'm sure everybody who's collecting NFTs know how expensive it is to move an NFT from one wallet to another wallet. So at least 50% of the gas cost of our loan is just moving the NFT. And 
that then puts like a lower or a lower limits on the the value of an NFT that can be used on the platform. So typically we see between 30 and 70% loan to value ratio, which means you probably need roughly, uh, you know, at the moment, because gas costs are cheaper, probably half an ether floor price on a project is kind of what you're looking for, or at least a significant number of the, the items in a project being above the, that value. So that's the second one. And then the third thing we also look at is, is there good secondary volume on a project? Because as a lender, uh, when you get a default, there needs to be an active secondary market for you to be able to sell that NFT to recoup, recoup your cost. So, so those are the three things that we that we really look for. You know, as the scaling solutions kind of become more common and there's like clear winners, there's good bridges and so on, the gas portion of a transaction should go down significantly. And then we can open it up to to more assets. But the other thing to note of as from a from a lender's point of view, low value projects are generally much more volatile and higher value projects are generally more stable. So, you know, for you to lend on an on a asset that's got an average price of, you know, 0.1 Ether, it's a very risky proposition. And, and those lenders will have to A, do a lot of loans to make it worth their while and B, charge really high APRs to offset the risk of these projects that's kind of disappearing and going down to zero. You know, CryptoPunk is very unlikely that the value of a CryptoPunk is going to completely drop to nothing. Um, you know, so, so that's the, that's kind of one of the other considerations. And uh, is it possible to do multiple NFTs and as collateral? Uh, not yet, but it's coming soon too. So shortly after loan renegotiations, we're starting on, um, on bundles. Uh, and the way that we do bundles is that um, there's a standard called ERC-998. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is a, um, it's essentially a, a, a seven t- a ERC-721 that can own other ERC-721s. So what we do is you, you, we allow you to select the number of your NFTs. We mint a new NFT that then owns all of those other NFTs. And then you use that new NFT as the, the asset in the actual loan. Uh, and the reason we do it that way is because, again, like I said, most of the cost of a loan is moving the NFTs. So if you have a bundle of 20 NFTs, you have to pay that gas cost 20 times. Whereas if you if you have all of them owned by a single NFT, you can just move that single NFT and then you can unbundle it after the loan is finished. The other thing it allows you to do is you, um, you know, there's a cost to bundling because, you know, if you want to bundle 20 NFTs, you need to pay the gas cost to move those 20 NFTs into the bundle. Uh, but then you can choose to not undle, unbundle that after a loan. Then you can do multiple loans then on a single bundle and you don't have to pay that cost every single time to kind of bundle and unbundle. Yeah, that would be great for long-term holders. Exactly. Projects like CryptoPunks, I'd imagine, where people have multiple of those. Yes, so our two record loans were um, two $8 million loans. On One was on 104 CryptoPunks, the other one was on 105. So, so the deal between the borrower and the lender was, you know, an eight million dollar loan, but then they had to execute 105 transactions to kind of make that all make up that whole bundle. Right. Uh, and then, so once we have this bundle functionality, you can just create that bundle and then just roll the loan every time, or you know, use it multiple times um, mm-hmm. uh, to to going to do a loan. One thing we mentioned, and maybe we haven't really addressed directly, what we were talking about earlier about the rarity aspect, or um, oh, yes. uh, whether whether certain items in a project might be more ideal than others. 
for yeah. example, a rare item versus a floor item? Yes. So I think if the floor price of the asset is high enough, so like once you're kind of in the two ether or so range, you know, any item in that collection is going to be fine. And especially for the higher value ones like CryptoPunks and Bored Apes, you know, the floor um, assets, you get loans immediately. What's different about us and something, you know, one of the, the, the peer to pool models, what they, what the peer to pool models generally do is they say, well, we'll give you a 30% loan to value ratio on the floor price of this collection. And they don't take rarity into consideration because our loans are an individual calculation by the lender on the specific NFT. They do take rarity into account. And so you can get a bigger loan on a rarer item because lenders are willing to kind of make those loans. And in fact, sometimes you might actually get a better rate on a rare item because those rare NFTs, they don't sell as much. And a lot of our lenders are actually collectors. So, so for them, they're willing to give preferential rates for rare items because if there is a default, they're able to acquire an item that doesn't go on sale very often. That's right. Yeah. So in my case, I like to collect the rarer items. So that's something yes. I was thinking of, like just a lottery ticket. Maybe I get a rare item or, but on the other hand, obviously, and yeah, I understand that in terms of liquidity, it's much easier to sell a floor price. Yes. If you're doing it as a monetary thing, I would say a floor price would be probably better. A floor, floor item, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause there's, much, there's more liquidity. It's easier to sell them. Uh, you know, also what happens often when prices run up is like the difference between the floor mm -hmm. and the, the rare items kind of squashes up. Um, so if, if you're like a trader, it's much better actually to own floor items because You know, the rarer items, I think maybe it's like it's floor and grails, right? You want to have either have the top or the bottom and in between, they're nice if you're a collector who wants to own them because you like the rarity. Mm -hmm. If you want to be able to trade in and out and have very a lot of liquidity, like in times of the, you know, boom markets, uh, those semi-rare ones, like the prices don't go up as quickly as the floor does. So that, that, yeah. that, um, that mm -hmm. difference compresses a little bit. Um, so what are the most popular projects? Uh, I suspect I know which ones, but I'd love to know if there yes. are any surprises, maybe. Uh, yeah. So basically, if you take all of the Yuga, um, properties, so, um, Mebits, like the land, CryptoPunks, Bored Apes, Mutant Apes, that's a hundred million dollars of the total of $211 million in volume. So, so mm -hmm. they're going to, going to really dominate the top. Uh, and then, uh, and other ones that are kind of up there are, um, Clonex, Azuki is pretty popular. World of Women has been pretty popular. The metaverse lands are in terms of number of loans are near the top, but in terms of total loan volume are kind of in the middle, just because the average, there aren't really high value items in there. But yeah, it's pretty much the blue chips. And then Artblocks is also, um, uh, but again, the Artblocks is really concentrated in the few kind of really good um, projects. So Chromie Squiggles, uh, Fidenzas, Ringers, uh, you know, those ones are, take, make up the majority of the um, volume on, in Artblocks. Mm. Have you seen any correlation? Maybe you could say that some holders of certain projects are more kind of degen traders than yep. others. Yep. Yeah. So, 
Bored apes are by far the, the biggest, and then um, CryptoPunks are, are further down the list. And I think it's just because CryptoPunk owners are just very paranoid about moving their punk anywhere else. They're very concerned with contract risk. Typically, they've been in the space much longer, you know, so, so they bought their punks kind of like on the mint or shortly after the mint. Um, there are some people who bought more recently, but I'd say the majority of punk holders are on the conservative side, probably don't need a loan as much necessarily because, you know, they probably had 20 or 30 punks and sold some of them kind of in the, like in the big run up. So they're pretty flush with, with capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Border Apes, because it's a newer project and a lot of people got them for cheap recently and then the prices have really gone up. They it, it tend to be a larger chunk of their total kind of crypto exposure. Uh, so, uh, so for them, it makes more sense to take leverage on those assets. But really, I think the big thing there is just in the, the risk appetite difference between punk holders and um, board ape holders. We, we, were, we went to the punk brunch at um, NFT NYC. And then we went to like, we also did well, some I was stuff. there yeah, as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it was, it was very clear that this is a very different audience to any of the other projects that, mm-hmm. that we're looking at. And, and, and I think this is something that you're probably going to see becoming a bigger trend in the NFT space, you know, a year and a half ago, like, you know, if you were an NFT collector, you collected everything. And, um, and now like you're starting to see the, these different communities of different kinds of people who are collecting for different reasons, who have different risk appetites. Uh, so, so I do think it's going to be a trend that you're going to see where, where there's going to be a big split in the kinds of people and what they care about for different projects. Mm. And would you say there are maybe some typical terms that you see over and over in terms of rates and, and timelines? Yeah. So the, the average loan duration is, uh, 33 days. Um, uh, the most common loan du- duration is 30 days. So there's a few smaller ones and a few longer ones that kind of even out, but roughly around the 30 days mark is, is seems to be what's common. And then uh, interest rates and loan to value that varies a lot by project, mainly by the the kind of how blue chip the pro- project is. So on CryptoPunks, I think the average APR at the moment is around ten point two percent, something like that. So very low, but also typically lower loan to value. So like thirty percent loan to value at around 10% APR. The board apes, again, because I think people are a little bit more risk tolerant in, in that space, you're probably seeing more close to 50-ish percent loan to value ratio, but then a correspondingly higher um, APR, so between 30, like probably around, just coming down to around 30 after this crazy market crash, the lenders have gone a little bit more conservative, so it's gone up again. Um, but over time, it'll kind of drop down again, I think, too. Mm. And in terms of use cases, what are people using these loans for? Uh, it's, so it's changed. So during the bull run, people are using it for certain things. And now that the markets are a little bit different, it's, it, it's changing. So uh, and maybe so a, a good question related to that. Have you seen a drastic change between the bull and bear market? Or in your case, maybe it wasn't affected because the use case changed? Yes. Uh, okay. So let's talk about use cases yeah. first. And then I'll talk about like what we're seeing yeah. in the actual loan volumes. Okay, so use cases during a bull run, some people just want to stay liquid um, because they're on OpenSea all day. They see, oh, this person listed this for less. You know, obviously, either they need a quick sale or they just haven't keep kept up with the prices and they're listing. Like, 
during the initial run-up in CryptoPunks, there was quite a few times people would list something for five Ether when the floor was like 20 Ether, for example, right? Um, so th that didn't last for very long, but so there was lots of opportunities during that time if you were liquid to quickly snipe those things and then sell them for a profit. So some of our uh, active traders, they just, that's part of their strategy is I want to stay liquid so that I can like take um, like advantage of, you know, quick opportunities. Um, so that's the one. Uh, the other one would be, so we saw a huge run up in loan volume just before the other deed um, drop. And people were essentially leveraging up on their the existing NFTs so that more capital available to buy um, deeds in the drop and then sell them on the secondary. Uh, so that was like a, a very common thing. It was sometimes people would also just want to um, like, there's a new drop, you know, so it's a brand new drop. It's a new project. Uh, they're on the kind of uh, approved, like, you know, the pre-approved list. They've got some other assets, so they and they want to kind of make them liquid. So then they'll take out a loan on the existing assets, buy in the in the mint, sell on the secondary enough to get the to pay the loan back, and then end up with essentially free NFTs by kind of running um, mm -hmm. a strategy like that. So so that's kind of in the bull market on the borrower side, like in the bear market what things have changed a little bit is sometimes people just need the liquidity. So um, they leverage somewhere else in like DeFi or CDFI and they want to bring their like um, collateralization ratio down now that the prices have dropped a little bit. They don't want to sell their NFTs because then they have to pay a price to liquidate them early. So they'll take out a loan to top up like some of the other loans. So that's the one. Sometimes it's just also like, uh, like, people doing a short position that kind of needed to be covered. We saw some users actually during the time when Ethereum was like that day that Ethereum dropped from 1,700 down to like 1,100 or so. We had people taking out loans to short Ethereum. And then once the short was filled, they would pay back the loan, take out another loan, short Ethereum again. So they would so they like, so essentially using your NFT as leverage um, to be able to do other trades, you know, in the in the traditional market, and now what we're also seeing is some people being a little bit worried about the the floor prices of some of these projects holding up, so they're taking out loans almost like a put option. So um, so they basically it's a way for them to to limit the downside in case the project's value drops even further. Uh, so those are kind of some of the differences we're seeing between the um, the like bull and bear markets. So um, in that last case, they would not repay the loan then? And they, they would not repay the loan, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. So then they're kind of capping their downside to whatever the loan-to-value ratio was when they mm -hmm. uh, when they took out the loan. Last um, use case is... Oh, so the other question you were asking was uh, around um, what are we seeing in the market comp now compared to then? Yeah. So if you look at our loan volumes in US dollar terms, obviously it's down a lot, right? Yeah. Um, but most of our loans happen in Ethereum. So if you look at the, the Ethereum volume, it's down a little, but not down that much. You know, so I think that there's, okay, and why is it down even in Ethereum? A lot of projects, floor prices have just dropped, right? So, so during the, not last month, the month before, average loan value was around $20,000. Now the loan value, average loan value is about $8,000, right? So the, you just need more loans to kind of make up the same volume. But in terms of number of loans and number of users, 
you know, it's a little bit down, but not nearly as much as kind of the, the rest of the market, you know, so maybe 10 or 20% down. I think it's also a lot of people being a little bit scared and just saying, okay, I'm just not doing anything mm -hmm. right now. Lenders are still really, really active, you know, so there's a lot of lenders with a lot of Ethereum who like, are looking for yield that just doesn't exist in DeFi anymore. So the loan, the, like the lending side um, uh, has become very competitive. Uh, so if you, if you list a board ape, you know, within a couple of minutes, you'll have five to 10 offers um, already, you know, so there's a lot of competition to get these assets. Is there automation there in that case? There is some automation in there. Um, so there's bots that, that do kind of auto bids. Uh, typically, they use a um, some kind of AI pricing model. Uh, a lot of them use NFT Bank. Some of them use Upshot. Some have like a blended model where they kind of have, do their own calculations in there. Those typically are more, those offers are typically more similar to what you would see in a peer-to-pool um, style um, a protocol in that they're kind of looking at the floor price of the asset and being mm -hmm. quite conservative in terms of loan to value because those models aren't all that accurate yet. So, so you're taking both pricing risk and the risk that the, the asset is going to drop over time. Um, but then there's also just, just lenders that are super active that are just like all kind of competing to do manual offers. Uh, so, mm -hmm. so, and that's slightly slower, you know, maybe in the order of, you know, an hour or so to get those offers coming in, but it's still very competitive. And like what they'll often do is they'll look at what this person bid and then look at what that person bid and then kind of like adjust, you know, if, especially if it's either a borrower that is very active that they want to form a relationship with, Or if it's asset that's quite desirable that they want, you'll see a lot of kind of bidding competition and like pushing the, the APRs down um, over the course of, you know, a few hours. Uh, so you, you get the best possible deal. Mm. If you want quick liquidity, you can get it straight away, basically, but it's not going to be very optimized for your specific asset, mostly kind of related to floor. If you want to get the best possible deal, Uh, and get the most LT, um, LTV out of your um, loan, it's better to wait a little bit of, uh, and leave it listed there so that people can start kind of competing over it. Mm -hmm. and, and what happens when there's a match? Like, let's say I put in a, as a lender, I put in an, an offer and then yeah. I walk away. What happens if there's an acceptance? Uh, yes. So uh, you as a lender don't have to do anything. Uh, basically what you do is, Your offer is a signature, uh, so we, which signs all of the terms that you're, that you're happy with. So you say, so you, it's your, um, loan principal, loan duration, repayment amount, uh, and the asset that it's for. And then we take a signature that encapsulates all of that information. Uh, and then that is kind of then that's what your, your offer is. And then as a borrower, Uh, because you're executing the transaction, we don't require a signature from you because you actually have to execute the, the wallet that owns the NFT has to be the thing that start the wallet that starts the actual transaction. Um, uh, and then what we do is we take in that signature and double check again that everything is correct, actually in the smart contract, that you know, all the terms match what was in the actual offer. And then the smart contract actually moves the funds out of the lender's wallet into the borrower's wallet and moves the NFT out of the borrower's wallet into escrow. Okay. And the lender would receive an email maybe or something. You would receive yeah. an email and there's a notification yeah. on our website. And we're also looking at 
doing some integrations with um, like EPNS or one of these kind of direct um, uh, like public key to public key messaging services so that we can mm. provide, you know, more real time updates uh, to, to people and, and in a way that's secure, you know, like Discord for doing financial transactions is pretty dodgy. Uh, so, so over time, we'll do more and more of the kind of um, actual financial negotiations and talking to each other and sending somebody an offer. We're going to eventually start discouraging people doing that off platform and start using, you know, kind of a secure encrypted, um, you know, crypto native communication um, uh, channel between each other. Mm. As a lender, when I make an offer, can I time limit it as well? Yes. So there's a there's expiration time. So you can set mm. that how long, how long you want to make that. And you mentioned like private deals. In that case, mm -hmm. do you see people like chatting on Discord? Maybe they're in both in the Moonbirds Discord. They come to an yeah. agreement and they used Niftify just as just a smart execute. contract. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then we also see people forming relationships a longer term, you know, so it's, for example, the, the borrower that does all of these, um, did all of these shorts, you know, so they would take out a long period loan just in case the, the trade didn't go in their way so that they have some time then to, to basically find the money to repay. But then they would often repay within hours, which actually means it ups the effective APR of those loans. So, so there's certain lenders that like, you know these kinds of borrowers and say, okay, well, I should give you a really low APR because most of the time you repay much quicker than the actual loan duration. So the, we're starting to see these kinds of things where it's like the way I kind of think about it a little bit is up until recently, we've had um, you know, crypto uh, or internet native money and programmable money, which was cryptocurrencies. And now all of a sudden you know, with NFTs being so popular, there's, there's, crypto or programmable property rights or, or, you know, digital ownership of actual goods that you want to spend. So DeFi for me was really just money games. You're trying to get a yield, you're trying to get interest, you're trying to, to get leverage, but then to do something with that money, it was either for investment purposes or you had to sell the crypto to go do something in the real world. Um, but now we've got this crypto native economy happening of people buying and selling and trading with each other. Uh, and like what we're starting to see is this kind of um, ecosystem develop of, you know, peer to peer commerce and people figuring out, hey, I want to do this with this person. You know, you, you kind of trust them, but you, there's still a nons on um, kind of on Discord, right? So you do want to have this, this layer in between the actual transaction that takes the requirement of actual trust away because, you know, you both agreed on what's happening in the smart contract and you can execute that without having to worry about it too much. And in, in that case where there's a private thing, would there be a, a different workflow or is it just, here's my address, just accept my offer kind of thing? So there's, uh, so we just recently released a new feature called private offers, uh, which essentially would allow you to make an offer on an asset that hasn't been listed yet. Uh, so, so that, because otherwise what happens is you do all the work to make that, um, that, you know, form that relationship, the person lists, you make them an offer, a bot sees that offer and undercuts you by 1%. So mm -hmm. it kind of discourages people then from actually forming these kind of personal relationships. But private offers then allows you to kind of have these things, which really is, it's just you and me 
coming to an agreement and we can execute that without somebody else jumping in in the middle and saying, hey, I'll give you a, like a 1% discount. Because you as a lender have like then done a lot of work to form that relationship, negotiate the terms, get the person often... You know, they are helping bring them onto the platform, you know, so because lenders are already active, they can find people who, who they want to work with, you know, so they don't want to kind of have somebody like steal all of the work that they've been doing to kind of get this person comfortable coming to use um, Niftify. Mm. Uh, what about the, when there are drops, for example, the ape coin for the board yes. apes a while back? Yeah. A lot of people that some. Um, uh, took advantage of that drop with regards yes. to yeah yeah so so we do have um, flash loan functionality that we can kind of implement to 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 get that out. It's not fully rolled out on the front end, but it's built into the smart contract. Uh, but that really only works for like one kind of airdrop, right? And and it's the airdrop where you can claim based on ownership of the asset that's currently in your wallet. Anything that's snapshot based, you doesn't work. Um, in those scenarios. Um, so the, the real way to kind of solve that is to essentially allow people to have their own escrow accounts. So, mm -hmm. you know, so you have your own escrow account. I've got a separate escrow account. Then we know whatever goes into that escrow account is, is yours. Um, because if you have a pooled escrow, you know, we get the drop, but uh, how much goes to which, you know, asset. What we have been doing recently is we've been speaking to those projects and sending back back the airdrops um, to them and then having them redistribute and other projects are, are they have a process now because of these kind of lending contracts and and collateralization contracts are becoming more and more popular they do have a process where you can say hey my asset was in a smart contract during the time of the drop and you know and then the project itself has a process to kind of pull that out but the long-term solution for us is kind of Ideally, actually, you should be able to use this asset and keep it in your wallet and then have some kind of way to stop it from moving out of your wallet, but it stays in your wallet. Um, you know, so that's a pretty big technical challenge, but um, you know, I think there are ways to do that. But that's a longer term kind of solution. And I think it'll be a key building block in, in enabling uh, more of these kinds of protocols and, pro and projects to kind of be developed where you have... You, as actually the the wallet is actually the one that providing the escrow services. Um, uh, you know, it would have to be a smart contract wallet, can't be an externally owned wallet. But I think that there's um, there's like a building block that's still missing that we're kind of working on on um, uh, rolling out. Yeah, because I'm thinking of projects that I own, like Proof, Moonbird, Cyber Brokers. Yes, Moonbird's a great example, yeah. actually. There's right? a nesting as well. Yes, yeah. So if you want to nest. You know, having this kind of flash loan functionality doesn't, you still can't nest, right? Because, um, you know, so you need a much more sophisticated um, solution there because you, you don't want to have to go to every single project and get them to modify their smart contract to make it work with you. What you need is a generic solution that works across projects. Uh, but that's, it is actually a very difficult technical challenge. So right now, if I want to, to get to use the Moonbird as collateral, I would have to unnest. And then use it that's as collateral, right. and that's I wouldn't right. get any drops. Yes, based yes, on that exactly. When that's one of the reasons I think you, that like Moonbirds hasn't seen as big a up like usage, even though it's kind of you know like one of the better projects mm -hmm. out there. And, and this is another reason why we see different behavior between different projects. Like CryptoPunks, CryptoPunks, the CryptoPunk. There's not a lot of drops based yeah. on it. It's more art than a PFP, I would say. 
so that's very different, but their community is very paranoid. Like moondrops, I mean, uh, moonbirds, I think people are probably a little bit more risk tolerant in moonbirds, but it, there's this mechanic in moonbirds that makes it like they, that essentially disincentivizes people to use us right now because they lose um, the, the opportunity to nest. So, you know, so this is, we spend a lot of time speaking to communities to understand this and then trying to find like generic ways to solve those problems that kind of work across different projects. Mm-hmm. And especially with Moonbirds, you not only have the program then drops, but random drops depending yes. on which kind of Moonbird you want. So you absolutely want to keep it nested as much as possible. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and is there any protection for like banned items on OpenSea? that are used as collateral? Yeah, so we, we're working on a solution to do that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky problem, right? I think, do we kind of believe in decentralization, but at the same time, we also want to not like have people get scammed and we don't want to become the place where people like drop their, you know, liquidate their um, kind of stolen assets. But at the same time, it's like, do we feel comfortable that, let OpenSea gets to decide what's allowed and what's not allowed, you know? So, so I think it's like a, something that we're still trying to figure out. Um, it's something that we, we do want to protect against, but ideally it shouldn't be just some central actor that decides. So there should be, I guess, I think some way for the community to control or at least like un, you override, you know, the decision that kind of we as a company make or um, that, you know, even if we follow along with what OpenSea does, I do think that there needs to be some kind of mechanism for the community to decide, well, actually, I don't agree with this. This wasn't a, you know, um, there's so many times in crypto where people are like, well, was that a hack? Was that not a hack? Was that just the person like, you know, like, so, so this is something that we think is a little bit tricky to solve still, but it is something that we are actively thinking about. What I liked, the approach I liked is the one used by some aggregators where they just notify you that this and this item is banned on OpenSea. And then you can make your own decision because it can only, it can also be an economical decision. Maybe you want to profit of the fact that it's listed lower because it's banned, but you can do something with it. And I think that's like the more, more open. And maybe, I mean, sometimes also the, the person who, you know, the person who it was stolen from is willing to pay the price to get it back, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I had a friend actually telling me a story yesterday where they, they bought something on OpenSea that they then later found out was stolen and they contacted the original owner and said, hey, just pay me back what I, uh, you know, what I paid for it and I'll give it back to you just so that I don't lose. But, you know, so I do think that there are scenarios where completely banning trading these assets might actually not be in the interest of the of the original owner. Yeah, so I think it's a very nuanced problem. And I think as an industry, we're going to have to figure out a way to to kind of handle these situations in, in the future. But, I, you know, one of the big things for me is like, how do these things get stolen? Almost always is a phishing attack on Discord. Uh, so, yeah. so, you know, so I think that there's just a fundamental problem in the industry at the moment is that we're using an entirely unsecure platform to do our economic trading, right? Uh, we really, really, really need something where you know that if somebody is sending me a link, it's really this this wallet. Um, I can see their history, and I know for sure that it's an actual link to the right platform to do a secure trade. Um, you know, so so something where there's like a combination of a signature from 
the person sending the message and a signature from the platform that it's from that you can check to make sure that it's it's secure. So um, I don't know of anything like that out at, at the moment. Um, we're going to start building some of these things. We're not like not a full social layer really, uh, but at least for when you're starting to negotiate terms on a on a deal or sending somebody a, a transaction, we want to build a secure way to do that and uh, really discourage people from doing this kind of thing on via email or you know via discord or something like that you know these are that's the most common way these things get stolen so i think that's a it's the key thing for us to for us as an industry to solve yeah absolutely and the, like the last two questions i have one of them is as a lender or as a holder of many nfts have you been thinking about a way to monetize those nfts like i would like to be able to lend um, certain NFTs like proof, yes. for example. I, I don't need multiple proof passes, so I can yes. make money by yes. lending it out. Yes. Uh, so we've been speaking to quite a few rental protocols just to get to know them. Um, and also just for, you know, there's no reason like at a conceptual level why you can't leverage something and rent it out at the same time. So we're working quite closely with rental pro- projects to kind of see if we can kind of work together to make both of our offerings better. I do think it's probably a few years away. It feels a little bit early for me to do those kinds of things. I think the main use case at the moment is access to physical events. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, walking around at a physical event with your hardware wallet to sign to get into the front door with like a big sign, like t-shirt on your chest saying, hey, I've got a bunch of bored apes. It's like a really risky proposition, right? So there's a lot of attack vectors for hackers to kind of um, to, to steal those things from you. So I do think the way access is going to move is maybe more like VCon did it, where you you mint a pass from your original asset, where the pass itself isn't the, the original asset. Well, actually, I think an um, uh, NFT NYC, I did not require the actual NFT for any event because most yeah. of them were using token proof or a chain pass. So yes. I think that's a good solution, actually. Yes. And then, so then, so I think in the short term, there's going to be ways to sell on your token pass or, you know, mint a new mm-hmm. ticket that you then sell on because you don't want to be working around with this, you know, $300,000 asset um, with you at an event where all the scammers and the hackers all know that there's lots of people with high value assets here. So, so I do think in the short term that use case is going to, as, as a reason to rent is going to go away. Um, I think once you start having some more play to earn games and these kinds of things where you, uh, or like, you know, um, basically almost replacing the scholarship model that you're seeing in Axie and Infinity and so on, where you can just rent at scale. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the main use case, but at the same time, gas costs are just super high for those kinds of uh, things. So, you know, it'll probably have to be on a roll up, probably have to be, or on a, like a side chain. Yeah. So I think rentals are really, are they definitely going to be a big thing. I just don't know when that kind of product market fit where the technology is ready the the protocols that actually make it possible is there and the, like you know the the gas costs are low enough to kind of make these things make sense and, you know so i mm-hmm. think that's coming sometime over the next year and a half maybe two years um so we'll have to see when when like that kind of hits that inflection point awesome and um, just to finish off uh 
Well, I'm going to have to ask two questions here. One, uh, one is, uh, what tips for new lenders and borrowers would you have? And mm-hmm. what are you most excited about Niftify, what you're building, or maybe just NFTs in general? Yes. Okay. So tips. Um, so what I would do is come to our Discord and ask. We've got a lot of really kind of helpful, and um, we've got a, like, a team of amazing ambassadors who are you know, kind of um, often very well-known people in the, in the individual communities. A lot of our lenders are very happy to help borrowers. You know, there's even borrow lenders that like offer zero um, percent APR for the first loan for new projects that are coming in, just to kind of help people get up to speed. Um, you know, that's nothing to do with us. That's just them deciding mm-hmm. to do that on, on their own because, again, they want to form a relationship with these these borrowers, which I think is something that's different about this peer-to-peer thing um, than with you know this peer-to-pool contract stuff. And it is people do make kind of business relationships and have repeat business and are able to negotiate specific terms because they know each other from kind of doing stuff before. So I would definitely start there. On for lenders, I think it's very competitive. It is quite hard to to you know because they're everybody's competing for the board apes that get listed. So so it is quite tricky. What you need to do is you need to understand. You're, are you doing this because you don't, you, you're like have a long-term belief in that project and you're willing to kind of take what would be a financially risky loan because you're actually okay with the default because you just hold on to that project for the long term and then kind of sell it later on for a profit. So, so understand what kind of lender you are. Are you a lender who's also a collector and holder or are you a lender that just wants yield and return and adjust your strategy accordingly? And the other big thing that people need to be very aware of is compared to OpenSea and OpenSea, what you're going to be looking at is what is a good deal in terms of price today? What you're doing when you're doing a loan is you're taking a view on how likely this asset is to drop for the duration of the actual loan. So you need to look at some data in a slightly different way. So for example, you know, if you're going to offer a, a loan on Moonbirds, like look at the trading history of Moonbirds and see like, um, you know, if I want to do a 30 day loan, what was the maximum drawdown in any 30 day period for Moonbirds? So like, so what is the difference in peak price to lowest price in any 30 day period? And then you need to kind of start adjusting your LTV by that. And then if you're willing to give LTV higher than the drawdown, you should be compensated by taking out a little bit more um, APR and the lenders can see all these statistics for per project. Not on the platform <laughs> yet, but we are looking for. Um, so a lot of the sophisticated guys like scrape in all of this information directly off chain and have their own kind of models that they build. Okay, uh, there's uh, we are looking at adding these kinds of features initially. Like what's coming soon is on platform data. So what is the average APR of, of um, for loans on this asset over the last like 60 days or 30 days or 90 days or whatever you want? Uh, what is the average loan duration? What's the default rate um, for that period? So that that's coming on platform. So those are our stats for our, you know, that we are producing, which I think is actually interesting stats that's not really available in other places. Mm-hmm. It tells you something about like what lenders are thinking the market's going to be doing over the, the next period. And, but then, yes, these other things like max drawdown and all this kind of stuff is also something we'll add um, you know, like in the next round of improvements on, on stats. And then uh, what am I most excited about? Well, first of all, 
I think the after being at NFT NYC and I don't know about you, but not many people seem super worried about NFTs kind of going away, right? Like the, the conversations I kept hearing was like, oh, I'm just waiting for for the the prices on Fidenzas to drop so I can buy one. Mm. And then yeah. everyone complaining because the floor prices are actually up in ether terms, right? Uh so so I think that there's it, there's this like decoupling of NFT market from crypto markets that I'm starting to see happening. It's like, you know, if you're a collector, you're a collector. It doesn't matter really what the the Ethereum price is because you you know, like and like I said before in DeFi, price going up is is kind of the point of doing stuff there. Whereas NFTs, there's a reason to buy NFTs that's not to do just with the price. You just actually want these things. You believe in the artist, you believe in the community. You know, there's there's something going on there that's different from from DeFi. And then what am I most excited about with Niftify is, is like I said, you know, so we, we would have meetings with lenders and would bring borrowers with and say, hey, this is what we want to do with each other. Um, and, and, and like for me, what I'm really excited about is like, what is this peer-to-peer prog- programmable commerce going to look like? Um, and, you know, loans are one part of that puzzle, but there's other things that people want to do. And the more they kind of, we really want to be like that, trust layer between um, people who need to have financial needs and who own these assets who are kind of trying to build businesses uh, and build, um, you know, trading strategies and do commerce with each other. And so, so for me, that's really exciting. It's kind of being that, that kind of protocol in the middle that puts these people together and allows them to come up with novel new ways to kind of do peer-to-peer trading. I see a lot of potential way beyond what you're currently doing, especially in terms of like what you mentioned, or you're able to see certain trends or at least see what uh, big money collectors and lenders think the market will be. And that's very valuable information that maybe nobody has. Right. That's, that's yeah, really exactly. Awesome. And, 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 and like these people are literally coming to us and telling us what products they want. Right. Um, and, and I think being a peer to peer protocol, that's kind of, you know, at its essence, quite simple. So it's relatively easy for us to add new features in these kind of things, allows us to be responsive to those kinds of markets. And because I think what happens in DeFi a lot is they're trying to take the connection between people away so that it is just a pool and you're interacting with this pool and you just like, it's pure con- like math. And it's like, it's great for money. It's not so great necessarily for, for like NFTs that are unique, um, where one of the things I like the most about the NFT space is getting to know people and building relationships with people. Uh, so I think leaning into that a little bit and kind of, you know, figuring out how, how does commerce look when you have, you know, both programmable money, programmable ownership. And like a trust minimization layer in between that allows essentially strangers to do business with each other and know that they're not going to, the worst thing with, you know, at least with Niftify, with a Niftify loan, you know that like under these circumstances, this will happen. And if the person doesn't repay, I will always get the NFT. So I don't also run the risk of now having to track this person down, sending a sheriff to his house to go get this thing. And then there's like mm-hmm. a, a court case and all of this kind of stuff. You know, you can take all of that stuff away and reduces the transaction cost and allows you to do things that wouldn't be possible in the real world. Um, I do think there's potentially a space for kind of peer-to-pool things. 
Uh, I think there's the, a tool in the toolbox, but I think that there's something unique in this kind of like with us kind of playing between these two worlds um, that are now coming together um, in a in like a unique way, uh, and that's really that's the thing that's most exciting to me, really. Yeah, for sure. Um, big thanks for helping us understand how Niftify works and what's next for the space. Just to finish up, where can people get in touch with Niftify and with yourself? Yeah, so um, our Twitter handle is at NFTFI. Um, and mine is at Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N underscore Y-O. There's links on our Twitter to our Discord um, and our website is uh, nftfi.com. Uh, so come check us out. If you've got questions, ask in the Discord. There's lots of people that'll help. Um, and thanks for having me and asking such great questions. It was, um, Thank it was really much. fun. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Stephen.